Uh, this morning, we're actually going to be doing something a little different. So I'm going to have Max, Nikolai, and Mike Wilcox come up and join me. Um, but some of you know that uh, we've been going through what we've been calling the God I Don't Understand series. We've been trying to handle some of those difficult passages in Scripture. And many times, just the stuff that we don't hear from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Actually, as I was on my trip I was uh, in Israel, I was there with a number of pastors and when pastors get together, generally you talk about, you know, what you're teaching through. You know, what are the things that are hard about ministry at this moment? And so I was talking to a few pastors about just what we've been doing with the year of biblical literacy and the things that we're going through. And they were just like, wow, good for you guys. Nobody is talking about this stuff. And it needs to be talked about. And so, um, as most of you know, we have just gone after this stuff. We have not held back um, We've, our desire has been to tackle these issues head on. And we think that the problem right now in the church is that most of our objections to the Bible, doctrines, teaching in the Bible, come because of a biased, cursory reading of the Bible. We come to the Bible with skepticism. We don't come with faith. We don't come saying, God, tell me who I am. God, tell me what to do. God, you're so good. We're like, I don't know about you, God. I don't know if I like you. I don't know if I like your laws. I don't know if it's good for me. And that is like, we're bent towards that. We have a biased and cursory reading of scripture. Also, we have culturally conditioned morality as opposed to biblical morality. We think that our culture has got it figured out. We are the most enlightened people that have ever lived on the face of the earth, and everyone else, even going back 20 years, has been dead wrong, as opposed to the Bible being the authoritative word of God for all of time. And finally, we simply have a lack of understanding of the biblical storyline. So because of the condition of our culture and the condition of the church at large, we have sought over the last month to consistently bring these things before you. Those three things, tackling these issues with those thoughts in mind. We, your pastors and teachers, believe that the God of the Bible is faithful, gracious, and just in all that he does. And we have simply sought to show you that we have not twisted scripture, we have not gone just to proof text, but we have sought to teach you the biblical storyline so that you can see for yourselves the true nature of our God. Um, Just as is recorded in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, Yet he does not leave the unrepentant unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. We believe that that is the consistent portrayal of God from Genesis to Revelation. Now, in this series, we've talked about, gosh, um, seeming inconsistencies between the Old and New Testament. We've talked about polygamy, slavery, divorce, sexuality, violence, holy war, genocide, judgment, evil, and the list goes on. And so then we asked, what do you think? What are you thinking about? What is troubling you? Ask your questions. We will seek to give our biblical uh, and also ethical answers where the Bible doesn't actually speak or is silent on some of these issues. 
And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to spend our time uh, talking through some of the questions that you've asked. And if we have extra time, maybe we'll be able to pass around the mic or maybe we'll, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll just let Max ask a difficult question. Uh, we'll kind of see how this goes. Um, you have, yeah, Max has a few. How many angels dance on the pen of a needle? Just one. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to do this in just a minute. Um, most of you guys... I think everyone knows Nikolai. He's one of our elders here. Also, Max is one of our elders. I am one of the elders here. I'm the teaching pastor here. And then this is our friend, Mike Wilcox. And he's, um, I'm older. He's our older, elderly friend. Not true. Not true at all. Mike, you're younger than my dad. So there you go. Um, but Mike is a clinical counselor. He also uh, has his degree in biblical studies. Um, I was a pastor for many years, and just much, much wisdom on um, not just the Bible and theology, but pastorally how we handle these things. Because, you know, we can say, look, it's black and white, but we know that many of the answers to these things are relational, and that they have to be walked through with uh, compassion and sensitivity. And so we thought that it would be great to just have his voice up here with us this morning. So... Without further ado, you have a microphone? Yes, I do. We have a microphone. Beautiful. Let's do this. All right. Question uh, number one that was emailed uh, over the last couple weeks is, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? My life would be so much easier without it. Just saying. That's no ad-libbing. That's verbatim. Uh, again, I'll reiterate, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Well, I think it's good to point out that he didn't just put the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He also put the tree of life at the same time. So we'll give them equal footing there. He didn't just provide temptation, but he provided life as well, so... We'll balance that out a bit. Yeah, and I think also uh, when we ask that question, which is a good question to ask, we, we actually kind of fall into what the serpent is doing in the text as well, is that he is focusing only on the tree that is forbidden, and he's not focused on the creation that has been abundantly given to God's creatures and all the resources and the authority that God has um, lavished upon uh, his image bearers there. And so, see, the serpent, he ignores all of that. He ignores the fact that the garden is filled with God's glory, his provision, that he has crowned man and woman with dominion, authority, uh, the chief of his creation, and he only focuses on the one prohibition. And so we need to be careful <laughs> that we're asking the right question and that we don't find ourselves in the camp of the serpent. Um, which is to say, God, why have you, right? It's, it's an attack on the character of God. So just one thought I had off the top. But Mike, do you want to take a stab at this one? You know, I asked yesterday how this is going to work. And, uh, you know, are, was Max going to call people out and say, okay, it's a tough question, Nikolai, it's yours. You know, I, um, I can appreciate deeply uh, what Char was sharing, and I think where all of our hearts are, these things always, these questions always arise in the course of doing life. You know, I would have to, I would have to echo whoever it was that 
that posed the question, it would be a lot easier if that wasn't the case. Uh, I'm just saying. Uh, it, it does help, I think, to uh, look at the story in Genesis as well and to watch how God had Moses capture that story and how it was written. Uh, because when God says, here's the tree, it's a tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And, and we don't know all that that entails uh, but one of the things it entails when you look at the literature of the, of the Hebrew Bible is whenever you say two ends of a spectrum, from good to evil, from day to night, from first to last, it's called a merism. And, and what the tree is offering is not just understanding what's good and right and what's evil and, and bad, but it's really saying, and this is, I think, what the serpent was offering the, the human beings in the garden, you can know everything. You get to define your own life. You get to decide what it all means. And when I look at my own life, yeah, that, to be very honest, is the struggle every day. Um, it's, in essence, saying, Mike, are you God? Or is God God? Do you know, or does God know? Uh, or if I use the question God asked uh, of Job in their dialogue, uh, Mike, where were you when I made this world? Um, d- were you there on my consulting team when I set this out? Uh, or do I, almost God playfully saying, do I know more than you do? And so he puts the tree there to ask the question, are you going to let me, God, be the knower of all things? And you can ask me for the knowledge you need, or are you going to choose to say, no, God, I know it all? And I respond like a two-year-old and say, no, I know what's best. And I respond like when I was a college senior and I knew everything. And now, much, much, much later, many reunions later, I realize I don't know that much at all. And I keep going back to the source. One more thought on this. Um, I love what you were saying, Mike, about... It really is the option of the two paths. Um, and I, I think I've shared this with you guys from the pulpit, but I, I fully believe that God would have given Adam and Eve knowledge, complete knowledge. And I think that that is really what's going on there. It is the option to go after it yourself, uh, autonomy um, and self-discovery and all this, or the way of following the Father. And it's interesting to me in Scripture that the family is the unit from which knowledge is passed down, that this is God's ideal since the beginning, is that the family would be the place where um, knowledge would be cultivated, where things would be, where questions would be, um, you know, asked and answers would be given, and the family would train up their children in, in God's truth. And um, you even think about Jesus. You know, how did Jesus know who he was? Well, the angel told Mary and Joseph and Mary and Joseph told Jesus who he was, so that when he's 12 years old and they say, what are you doing? Don't you know that we were so worried about you? He said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? 
Jesus at 12 years old is saying, I'm only doing what you told me to do. I'm only being who you told me I am. And I think that when we really look at the biblical structure from Genesis to Revelation, God's ideal is that the family unit would be where knowledge would be passed down, cultivated, and where it would be grown. And that is God's desire from the beginning as father to pass that on to Adam and Eve. And then, of course, Augustine, he goes into a little more (laughs) deeper into the pool of talking about, well, there has to be an option. If we are to love God supremely and to choose God, there has to be a choice. Otherwise, we are robots that are only doing what God has told us to do. And love between God and creation is not real because that's all there is. And so God places this choice of knowledge and autonomy or knowledge through discipleship. Yeah, it's knowledge in the context of relationship or, or knowledge that you selfishly it's like Prometheus yeah. stealing, stealing fire from the gods. You know, the self went there, took it for himself, and you know that's uh, sort of the difference. Yeah. Between that. And which, uh, maybe just practically speaking, then parents, family of God, then that tells us how are we supposed to come to knowledge? First of all, through our father, and then as our family discussing the word together, bringing our questions to the table, whether that is the blood family or that is the church family, that this is the way that we are to attain greater knowledge and understanding is through conversation and dialogue around God's truth and maybe the problems that we might have with it. So just a practical piece. Very good. Very good. In the interest of moving along, uh, we have other questions to answer. Um, I'm going to read the question, and I'm going to read a little bit of uh, background, set a little bit of context uh, with uh, the passage that was referenced. Uh, the question is, how do you know if you are a tear or wheat? And again, I'm going to read uh, here in uh, Matthew 13 uh, from the referenced passage, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn." And so this, this question is, <clears throat> it's again referencing, some of you may be saying, okay, well, what, what's the question? <laughs> what is wheat and uh, what is tare or weed? Uh, and in this passage, it's, it's referencing um, the end time and the separation uh, that's, that's going to take place. And so that's the question being asked here. So I'll open it up. Um, I think... And just kind of a bigger, kind of a bigger thought. Um, 
most people who were who would be tares probably wouldn't care one way or the other. They would be just there doing their thing, happy to not be caught and and uh, and all that. And the one who continually asks and wonders and seeks the Lord and asks the question, um, I think it's pretty clear that that person is seeking after the Lord. So I think right there it shows a really big difference between a tear and a wheat. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, I'll just read part of it, but uh, Paul's telling the Philippians, um, so now not only my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling uh, or with awe and reverence. And the idea is continually be looking to the Lord and reminding yourself why you're saved, how you're saved. Examine yourself when you fail, when you fall. Go back and see, yes, it is because of God's grace. And this is something that we continually go back to and look at and, and those things. So I think it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's something that we're continually doing all the time is looking back to those things to, to continue to confirm those things in our hearts. So anyway, I'm actually really encouraged by the question because then that means that that person is seeking those things out. So that's a good thing. You know, I'm I'm sitting here pondering. So Char sent me the questions that he had at the time, and now we're two for two on questions. I've never, you know, I did I didn't have uh, these on my list. I don't know how email works. I don't know how email works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe he's saying I'm tares and not wheat or something. Uh, you know, it's there's a, there's a principle that I think can be extremely helpful in reading the parables of Jesus in particular, because the parables don't arise out of a a preset outline that Jesus had. Okay, today I'm going to go out and here's my sermon outline, and it's got three stories about people that do this and that. Uh, The parables always arise out of a living, breathing conversation between Jesus and the people around him. Uh, Sometimes his disciples, but more often the crowds that are asking same kinds of questions we would want to ask. And, And so a great way of reading the parables is to go back and see what question, and it might be in the form of a question or a conversation, preceded the parable. What conversations were going on leading up to it? And leading up to Matthew 13, uh, where this parable is found, there's been lots of discussion. Jesus, are you, are you getting your power from the devil or from God, essentially, if we boil down the question? Uh, Jesus, you know, when you are uh, speaking to us, are you speaking to us as uh, God's chosen servant, the one identified back by the prophet Isaiah, or as someone else? And so when Jesus goes into this, he's not just saying merely look out for yourselves. You know, oh, no, I might, be, I might be a weed. Um, not that kind of weed. Okay. <laughs> just seeing if you're paying attention. But he is saying, consider me. 
and and watch yourself because I'm the one who's planted you if you belong to me. And I'm the one that guarantees you are who you are. And I'm the one that guarantees the weeds won't choke you out that come up around you. And I'm the one that God sent to guarantee a good harvest in the end. Uh, They're actually words of, of reassurance And at the same time, then, as Jesus, in the follow-up, acknowledges to his disciples, he's saying, yeah, there are people around you that look like you, that are trying to fit in, that are are nominally saying they're my followers, and yet they don't belong. But don't worry. I'm in charge of that, not you. Yeah, and I think that's great to look before what comes in Matthew 12. Also, in uh, Matthew 13, you know, when Jesus tells parables as well, he usually tells them, he tells them in groups. So, uh, for instance, you have the parable of the lost sheep, you have the parable of the lost coin, you have the parable of the lost son. All of them are saying the exact same thing. And sometimes we can get confused when we separate them. And maybe it's the chapter break or verses, breaking the verses, whatever. But sometimes we don't realize Jesus is actually saying the same thing many different ways. He's looking at different sides of this. And so... When Jesus tells the parable of the of the soy, of sawyer, goodness, of the sower, um, he says who, in a sense, who the wheat is. Listen, he says, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty and in another thirty. So Jesus says specifically in these parables that the wheat or the good soil are those who hear God's word and understand it. And, of course, Jesus is saying to the crowds, he who has ears or she who has ears, let them hear. It's a willingness. It's a desire to be taught, to be discipled, to be led by God's word. Now, this is interesting. When we were in Israel, get to share a story about Israel. We went to Nazareth, and uh, Nazareth is a pretty interesting place um, They really don't have any biblical archaeological sites there. Um, You know, people have lived there for thousands and thousands of years, and so they don't do a whole lot of archaeological digging there. Uh, But what the YMCA has done there is they have rebuilt um, a section of the city, and so you go there and you kind of would walk through what the village of Nazareth would have been like in the time of Jesus. It's it's really cool, actually. Last year we went. I didn't like it. This year, I don't know what happened. I loved it. but at one point in time, you know, they take you to where the sheep pen is. And one person in particular is like, why don't you have any goats? And the lady looks at them and she's like, have you ever tried keeping goats? They're the worst. And I had never in my life thought about when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. He says, my sheep hear my voice. Do you know goats do not listen even to their shepherd? Have you ever watched YouTube videos on goats? Because if you haven't, you have never lived, first of all. These are the greatest YouTube videos in the history of YouTube, maybe the world. So do yourself a favor, church. Have a blessed Sunday afternoon watching YouTube. But it's just fascinating to see how ornery and just defiant these animals are. And so you think about that. The sheep are those who hear the voice of the shepherd. They listen. They obey. The goats are stubborn set on their own way, doing things 
their own way, going on their own path. And I think that when you bring all those together, this is what Jesus is saying. The wheat, the good soil, the sheep are those who hear the word of God, have a desire to be led and discipled, want to be shepherded. That's how you know you're a sheep. And if you have even the slightest desire, inclination towards that, I would say feed that desire. Give way to that desire. That is the Holy Spirit prompting you. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm a big advocate myself of, uh, of knowing the word, knowing scripture, so that in order to preach it to yourself a lot of time, uh, it, to remind yourself that when possibly the, the fiery darts of the enemy are coming, are bringing doubt, are bringing um, uh, even these, these thoughts that, well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough, I don't amount to, I, I don't, uh, just, just different condemnations that we, will, uh, that we will think throughout the day, uh, that, that we have scripture hidden in our hearts, in our minds, it's a part of our practice, uh, to preach to ourselves also uh, confessing our sins to one another, practicing repentance, uh, throughout our lives is going to um, is going to help combat um, these doubts, uh, these fiery darts, and so just to kind of um, see it from the perspective of, of moving forward, uh, these guys gave great uh, answers concerning um, the things that we can remind ourselves of uh, on a daily basis because they come if we 're all honest and transparent uh, there 's not a one of us in this room that 's trying to honestly follow Christ that doesn't have days, weeks, months where we're, where we're plagued with this question of, am I following? Am I amounting? Am I doing enough? Did I make the right choice? And, and these are things to where if we're preaching to ourselves, if we're uh, involving other people in our lives, that, that we can really combat these questions. Amen. So uh, any other thoughts before we move on? Okay, this is one we're all interested in. Uh, I think on the panel, a great question. It says, I am interested in thoughts regarding the origins of evil. Uh, I think it's pretty clear in Isaiah and Ezekiel that the origin of of evil, the origin of sin is with with Lucifer. Um, So if if you just want the real quick answer... Is Lucifer. There's the origin of evil. Um, but I think it plays into a bigger idea that um, God is not a God who uh, changes the rules midstream. So when God creates, when God sets up something, and remember, we're, we're part of this physical realm, but there's a spiritual realm that God was living and existing in with his, uh, with his ministers, with his servants, with the angelic realm. Um, and there were rules set up there as well. Um, when God sets something up, he wants participation, and he gives real stakes, and there's consequences, and it's a real thing. And I think sometimes what we do is we mix up this idea that God knows what's, what's going to happen, and that somehow changes things, but it doesn't. God sets things up for his created beings with the rules, with the establishment of, of this is the pattern that we're going to go down. And then there's real stakes for those who are participating. And so for Lucifer, there's real stakes when he rebelled. 
Then when you get to mankind, when you get to this created realm that we're in, again, God set up this world, this universe, with rules, established those, real consequences, and God wants participation. And so then there, is, there has to be an opportunity for us to participate. And in light of that, Lucifer brought that sinfulness that he had from there, and he basically provided that opportunity for humanity to engage with that as well. So if humankind were not allowed to be tempted, that's God changing the rules halfway. No, stop. You go back to where you're supposed to be. You know, it, it changes those things, that participation piece that God has. And I think, to, this is a long conversation, obviously, but it also kind of hinges on this verse on that one day, all knees will bow, and, or every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I really do believe that on that day, there's no one who can bring up a question. Yeah, but God, God what about this, and what about this? Because God has allowed all that participation to take place. And there's now no question that Jesus Christ is Lord. If, when Lucifer had originally sinned, it says that his sin was originally in his heart, it was pride, it was selfishness, it was wanting to ascend to be like God. If God had just right there, boom, judged, done, what would have happened to everyone else there? What happened to Lucifer? He sinned. What does that mean? Well, and it was in his heart. You couldn't see it, you didn't know. God becomes a tyrant who jumps into the middle and engages in participation, breaking his own rules in that sense. And then everybody has this question about God's character. What, what kind of God is this? What, what, he, he didn't even do anything, right? So, so sometimes we play on this idea that God knows something, but because God knows something's going to happen doesn't mean he's the causation of it. He allows for and wants that participation so that at the end there is no question that all these things have played out exactly in accordance to God's rules, God's justice, and all those things are then affirmed by every created being. They've all played out through that participation. I think, too, when you look at um, just the character of God all throughout Scripture, and particularly Jesus, um, I just read a book by a guy named Andrew Wilson, and uh, some of you guys might be familiar with that because we're reading, he's a co-author of this book we're reading through men's, for men's group, but he wrote a book called Spirit and Sacrament. And in the first chapter, he talks about charis or grace, goodness. And he just talks about the way that Jesus portrays God the Father. And just think about the story of the lost son. So here's a father who gives half of his estate away to his son. The son goes and spends it all, wasted on prostitutes, partying, all this kind of stuff, comes back penniless, all this. And when he comes back, the father runs to him, places a ring upon his finger. That is the family crest that he belongs, puts a new robe on him, slaughters the calf for him, and then also spends his money to bring back in his son. And this is the picture that God, that Jesus gives of the Father. Or even think about Jesus. Jesus, when he's invited to a wedding, he makes 150 gallons of wine. Does Jesus not know how much will get people drunk? Jesus, what is wrong with you? He makes bread and fish for the multitudes. Jesus, we do not need 12 baskets extra. What is wrong with you? God is good and his goodness is abundant. 
abundant. And that is the testimony of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so even though we might have questions about the origin of evil, did God cause, did God this, and there's some like Pandora's box, some Trojan horse, some Promethean fire, right? That is not the case in the biblical narrative. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow due to change. So I think that that's really important for us to come back to what Scripture does tell us about evil and about goodness. I think that exploring the question of evil through the eyes of God's goodness is a valuable way to do it. Um, Like we've said over and over And I imagine we'll say it with every question that's asked here in one way or another. These things are always relational questions, not abstract philosophical discussions. Uh, Even the word theology understood correctly uh, implies that there are human people, there are persons who are relating to theos, to God. Uh, Theology is to know God. It's not an academic university study as much as it is a personal relationship. And in, in God's goodness and abundant, uh, overwhelming, overflowing loving kindness, uh, he comes to us, and and he meets us at a place where, you know, evil isn't a thing, you know. Where did evil come from? Well, I mean, evil isn't a, an object that you can look at and describe and say it's this or it's that. Evil is a word that describes uh, the behavior of people and the choices they make. And at its root, the words used to describe evil throughout the Bible, uh, we might even translate them harm in many cases. It's, it's not merely that, that there's a checklist, uh, uh, stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and God says, well, that's evil, that's off the list, that's against... It's so much more than that because... God, what God is concerned about and how he structured it and created it to be is that you and I, each one of us as his created beings, would not participate in those things that harm us and harm other people. He is good because he says to us, Uh, these things are harmful and I don't want you participating in them because I don't want you to see you, I don't want to see you hurt, my child. I don't want you to, to watch you hurting one another by the things that you do. And so again, the concept of harm then is defined through the eyes of God who is good and just, and right, and loving. And as he teaches us repeatedly and says flat out in Romans, don't you know that it's God's kindness that brings you to repentance? And so why would you resist that kind of kindness? Beautiful.
Let's move on to the next one. How can different Christian churches have such different views on things? Sexuality is an easy example. The church I grew up in is open and affirming, and refuge is not. Please explain how we are all Christians working on the same Bible, but have differing ideas. And again, to set a background here, <clears throat> just uh, some of the terms that maybe not everyone is familiar with. Affirming uh, would be speaking to someone who is uh, openly gay, openly same-sex attracted, and can come and continue to practice that uh, same-sex attraction or be in open relationships, and the church affirms it. The church says, this is good, this is acceptable, uh, where, and, and refuge was referred to as not being an affirming church. Uh, refuge is not saying that membership uh, is, is acceptable uh, or is possible for someone that is openly gay, unwilling to to be um, so many, so many, maybe even uh, controversial words, not able to be open to the transformation that God has uh, for them uh, in their new life in Christ. So again, um, two two questions here, really. One being, how can different Christian churches have such different views on things? Is the question, uh, and then we'll speak to the example as well. Um, I think um, when we, we talk about different Christian churches having different views on things, just in that general question, a lot of times we're talking about like all the denominational differences that we have. Um, and I think there, there's some denominations that they um, separate themselves out on certain issues that are not ultimate. Right? And we wouldn't necessarily separate from them just based on some of those things. So like uh, very particular types of church governance or uh, particular modes of baptism or something like that, where it's like, those are, those are points to discuss, but it's not like we, we won't talk to them, we won't fellowship with them, we won't do those things. So some denominations separate out on things that are not ultimate. And then there are some that, that they're different because they don't just take the Bible. So the question specifically was, how can we have all these different churches when we have the same Bible? And I think part of that is is that you'll have different denominations of different traditions that um, don't just have the Bible. They have varying degrees of other things that they use to determine doctrine, like their church tradition, church history, um, you know, popular opinion, uh, cultural uh, impact, um, things like that. So... It, it sort of depends. Some churches take a lot of those things with, with a lot heavier hand and also bring the Bible, and when, they, when they're in conflict, they kind of have to pick uh, which way to go or which way they, 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 would, they would decide. And, and that's obviously a very oversimplified way of sort of saying it, but a lot of de- denominations, different churches will have those varying degrees of other things that they'll use to make some of those decisions. And so then they'll look at the scripture and they say, oh, this says, yeah, but that's antiquated because we have this church tradition or we have modern, uh, modern cultural understanding or modern ethics or something else. And they'll think that that's heavier, so then they'll lean more that way. And I don't know if that makes sense, but 
Yeah, I think one pastor uh, years ago, actually, my professor even puts it this way, you know, there's things that we will disagree on, and we're still Christians, and, you know, just differing views of baptism, like you said, or um, the Lord's Supper, how we go about that. There's things that we will divide over and maybe can't do life and ministry together because they're just so different um, in practice. And then there are things that we will die for. Um, these are non-negotiable um, truths from Scripture. Um, historically, the church has held to these things, Catholicity on these issues. Um, and I think that that's what we're, we're kind of seeing. There kind of is a rending down the middle um, with this issue of sexuality. Um, and, and I'll speak to this. Um, I think it's really easy for us to come to the Bible and to just think that we can play kind of like a game of Jenga with um, the Bible and with what it teaches. And we can say, hey, look, culturally, like this is just, you know, not couth, uncouth and unpopular and stirring up a lot of things. So let's just take that little Jenga piece out. And look, the thing still stands. Here's the issue when it comes to sexuality. If you go after this, the biblical sexual ethic, which is, by the way, what we oft, always teach on at Refuge, you have never heard a message on homosexuality in this church because that is not what the Bible does. The Bible doesn't say homosexuality, homosexuality, blah, 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 and just like rant about this. The Bible has a sexual ethic that it calls every follower of Jesus to abide by. And if you go after one piece, the whole house falls. If there is no prohibition against homosexuality, and you can read the arguments on both sides, if there is no prohibition in Scripture against homosexuality, guys, there is no prohibition against any sexual whatever in Scripture. That's just the way it is. And so then you have to ask yourself, why do I believe in monogamous marriage? Do I have to hold to that then? No, you don't. If you think that you can just pull the Jenga piece out of the, of the thing, then fine. Then just pull everything else out. Then pedophilia. Then, you know, open relationships. All of that. It's everything. Choose your own adventure. And that's what we really find when it comes to the biblical sexual ethic. It is all or nothing. And yet, and yet, there are sexually broken people. Maybe, actually, probably every single one of us in this room is sexually broken. And so we know that this conversation is much more nuanced than just like, nope, sorry, nope, nope, nope. And so we believe that you can be same-sex attracted and follow Jesus but that you have to crucify your flesh and bring it into the biblical narrative of what it means to give your sexuality to Jesus. And we believe that you can, you know, likewise, you can be in marriage, but you have to give your sexuality to Jesus because even in marriage, your sexual desire will not be fulfilled. It can't be. And this is why we always go back to the heart issue. You were made for God. All your desire is made for God, and one day, God will fill us all up. And until that day, we need to bring that sexual desire and our sexuality underneath the authority of Scripture and believe that Abba knows what's best and practice that. And I challenged you guys a couple months ago, what we need to see is the whole church practicing this biblical sexuality of fidelity and faithfulness. 
And until we do that, we better shut our mouths about our brothers and sisters who are struggling with same-sex attraction and how this and that and this and that. We need to step up to the plate, and we need to live lives of faithfulness to Jesus ourselves. That's all I have to say about that. I think one thing to, to comment on as well is when we do talk about affirming on affirming, we are not in any way saying that someone who is uh, practicing some of these things or struggling with these things, that that's a barrier for salvation. There is not any part or aspect of our life that we have to get clean before we come to Jesus. That doesn't make any sense because we would affirm that there's no ability for someone to get clean in any way before Jesus. There's no way for that. So I'll use the, the safe example. I think it's a safe example. You're, if you're robbing banks, and that's your thing, just love robbing banks, you know? I don't know. Uh, you come to Jesus, and you know, like, oh, I should stop, but you rob a bank, and we know you robbed a bank. We'd say, like, hey, shouldn't be robbing banks. <laughs> and I know, I know it's a struggle, because they're just sitting there, and there's just that one security guard, but you can't do that anymore, right? <laughs> Jesus does not want you robbing banks. And we would work with you on not robbing banks. We'd probably have to call the police, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's this idea that, oh, because I do that, I can't come to Jesus. No one has ever said that. No one can come to Jesus uh, with anything but just who they are. They can't fix themselves or fix a part. There's not one party that's more important to fix than another before you come to Jesus. But when you come to Jesus, you're telling him that you're my Lord I'm your servant, I want to serve you. And so then we should pay attention to what Jesus says he wants us to do. And we should follow him. At that point, it's living life. It's not, am am I saved or not saved? Because if you're following Jesus and he's your master, we'll walk through whatever. Robin Banks or not. You know, so I think that's important to say it's not a barrier. Something to talk about. And the idea of sexual immorality also includes hyper-heterosexuality. You know, and at the issue of the day, the New Testament, one of the big deals was a lot of these Gentiles who were coming to Christ, they had this idea that sexual practices are part of worship, and they're trying really hard to get rid of that. We don't do that anymore. And for us, that's super weird. But for them, that was the sexual issue of, of their day, to try to figure that part out. And, wow, I, we, don't, we don't do that at church, and that's weird. For them, it was. They had to work through those things. We fix it. So anyway, this isn't the first time this stuff has come up, and it won't be the last time. And you know, it's all right. Gospel still works. In thinking about at the root of, uh, or the or the initial question was really, how can we be working from the same Bible and come to such different conclusions? And, and of course, that's not a new problem in the history uh, early, early on of, in the history of Judaism in God's work with the Israelite people. It's been true since the, Paul sat down and dictated the first letters that, <laughs> that his secretary scribed out for him and rolled up and sent on mule back to a church and people have been reading it. Yeah, uh, it, it. In terms of, I, I kind of see it boiling down to this. It, it, you know, is this book, and and not this one, not this particular translation, not these particular English words, 
but but is what we understand to be scripture is it trustworthy and authoritative uh, or on the other hand is it is it fluid and and just suggestive um, that's a question that that sits at the heart uh, of who I am as a Christian uh, we've mentioned in another context already this morning Jesus saying my sheep hear my voice and they know me and so in a sense I'm I'm asking myself always the question Am I hearing my shepherd's voice here? Uh, and and am I hanging around with people that, if I miss the shepherd's voice, are able to say to me, Hey, Mike, 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 did you hear what Jesus was saying? You know, we start in that place. That puts us in such a different spot than than politicizing and marching around with placards because we're not focused on agendas. We're focused on sharing with each other, this is what our shepherd says. And it runs counter to the world we live in because the world we live in says what you desire is who you are. Uh, what you choose to do is who you are. We, get, uh, we are getting our identif- identity from what we want and from what we do. And God says, hold on a second. <laughs> the shepherd's voice says, wait a minute. Uh, that's not how you get your identity. I give you your identity, and then I ask you to choose what to do. I give you your identity, and then I ask you to work your desires from that place and to find that interior peace of mind that comes from living from who you really are. And then we can say, okay, so what does God say about me as a sexual being? A being, a human being who, among other things, uh, has a particular gender and a particular sexuality that God has given. And we grow, uh, uh, we, we work it out then in keeping with the voice of the shepherd. Fantastic. Um, and, and just one quick thing before we move on to the next question is that um, affirming, non-affirming, I think everyone is encouraged to, to have the, the correct posture shift, uh, meaning be involved with your neighbors, be involved with your coworkers, uh, love them regardless of, of whatever sin uh, they, they may have in their lives. Uh, don't let that be, don't let one sin be the thing that keeps you from forming a long-lasting friendship with someone, uh, whether they're a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, whatever it might be. Um, love the people around you and, um, and continue to share the gospel with them, um, again, regardless of sin. Um, the next question, how can God say he turns away from 
and doesn't hear you if you aren't doing all the things he asked perfectly. But we are not Jesus and can't be perfect. Seems like an unattainable expectation that I'm always falling short of. Is God going to turn away from me and not hear me? The answer is no. (laughs) The answer is no. The answer is absolutely not, yeah. Yeah, I I would say, I mean, just think about Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. Does God come on the scene with dark clouds under his feet, with the Garden of Eden melting before him, with thunderbolts, lightning, and all this? He comes and he asks a question, and he is asking, he's trying to draw out confession from Adam. And I think that this is the character we consistently see, again, in Scripture of God, is that God is the pursuing God. God is the God that goes after people. And if you are God, if you belong to him, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. That is a down payment, a part of the redemption that is to come. Uh, The writer of Hebrews quoting the Old Testament says, the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can say the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? So we have to hold these two things in tension. And I think the question is more about, are we harboring, are we holding on to sin? Are we holding on to unforgiveness in our hearts? And remember, Jesus, he he addresses this quite a bit, is that if we do that, it's actually an indication that we might not even belong to God. Because God is the forgiving God. God is the reconciling God. God is the God who pursues the offender. And if that Lack of forgiveness in us is there. It, it, it's probably an indication of a deeper heart issue. And I think the answer, again, is no. God will not turn his back on you. And, and again, this is, we have to get out of our heads this Greek God, this um, therapeutic, moralistic, deistic God who, you know, we have to do these things and jump through these holes so that God will hear us and answer us. That is not the narrative that we find in scripture. Again, God is not willing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance, so much so that he gave the life of his dear son to reconcile us to him. So I think we'll just leave it at that for this one because we've got one more and time's running out. So, And my answer was so good. So, <laughs> No, it's the truth. Just it's, kidding. It's the truth. And again, this is something that as we are involved in fellowship, as we have the word hidden in our hearts, as we're confessing our sins to one another, that we can remind one another of these truths. Um, the final question that was, uh, uh, that was emailed, how are we supposed to deal with the abortion debate? As a woman, I feel very uncomfortable telling another woman what she can legally do with her body, but as a Christian, I believe abortion is wrong. I also know wonderful people who love Jesus that had abortions in their past. How do I support them while all this is going on and triggering deep emotional scars? It's a very tricky way to put two questions in there. Um, One of the concerns in here is telling someone what they can legally do. We can't tell anyone what they can legally do. Like the law tells them that. So, you know, that's, that's sort of a, like a separate issue. Like, it almost doesn't matter what the law is because our responsibility as believers is exactly the same and always has been. So, um, anyway, just to kind of bridge with that, like we, 
the law is the law. And how we respond is we respond as a citizen of heaven. So that's sometimes two different things. Um, anyway, just to put that out there. I think uh, addressing the question of people we might know, um, and, and no doubt in a group this size, people here, thinking of themselves, you know, what if this is my history, and now words, harsh, angry, evil, hurtful words are being thrown back and forth across political aisles, uh, and in the midst of all that, you know, people that might be in this circumstance, no doubt there's great hurt and, and great pain being triggered by that and brought forth. And and I think I would, you know, I'd just come back to the essence of, I think, what God teaches us because it's his model. When he looks, he sees you. He looks you in the eye. When he looks, he does not see your behavior. He does not see your history. He does not see your position on an issue. He does not see your belief. He does not see your agenda. He does not see your law. He looks in your eyes and he sees you. And, and as we would engage people in this hot, heated, bubbling over context in which we're being told, uh, you know, this view belongs to Christianity or that view belongs to pagans or God is of this party or God, we can come back and say, wait a minute, really right now it's just you and me and and what the person I want to talk to is you, not these things about you, and to draw that in. And, you know, sometimes it, it never goes wrong in how do we minister to people. When in doubt, give them a hug. <laughs> uh, verbally, literally. Uh, sometimes it isn't about words and about saying the things that will help, but about simply reaching out. Yeah, it is really interesting when you actually look at it biblically, too. The Bible actually is silent on the issue. Um, and there are ways that people try to get to, like, oh, this is, the, this is the scripture and verse on abortion. The Bible is silent. Um, it never talks about abortion. I mean, you could talk about Pharaoh and what he did to the babies in um, Egypt. That's actually called infanticide, something different. And, of course, we are beginning to face that issue in our culture. Maybe the Bible does, or the Bible does have something to say about that but you know what else the bible never says the bible never says that we have a right to life and that's a slogan that the pro-life uses nothing in scripture says that life is a grace gift from god we have no rights it's a gift that's freely been given the bible does say though that god is the author of life and the issue in scripture comes down to i think you know when i think about whether it is a fetus or a, you know, a baby in the womb, or it is an 86-year-old with dementia. As we talk about value, personhood, and these things. And in Scripture, it seems pretty clear that it is God who has the right 
alone to take life and to give life. And when we look at, really, I think, if if we want to really ask the question, what is our responsibility? I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is the responsibility of the church. Jesus asks us, who is our neighbor? Will we be neighborly to the least of these? Um, you know, for the last couple of years, we've been talking a lot about um, these biblical themes of righteousness and justice, sedekah and mishpat. And righteousness is right relationship that leads to right action, right living. And then, of course, justice is using my own resources for the worthless person, the person that has no worth, the person that has no value, the person that can bring nothing to the table except be a liability to my life. That is the people that God's people are to champion. And I would say from scripture, it seems that that then the life of the unborn falls under that we are to champion for these people. I was reading, um, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with Richard Hayes. He wrote a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. And I love what he did in his chapter on abortion is that he painted the picture of, and he did similar to what you guys did, just like, look, this is politically um, or even as an American citizen, that's really not the question. The question is, what does the church do? And this is what he said, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan, according to this idea in Scripture that my life is not my own, but it belongs to God, that we are a people of Philippians 2 that put on the mind of Christ and put priorities of the other in front of our own. There should never be a woman or a family in our community that has an abortion because of an economic hardship. That economic hardship is our hardship. And however inconvenient that might be to us, That is the responsibility of the community of faith, to take on that child, to take on that mother, and to take our own resources and walk with her, walk with them through life from the cradle to the grave. That is what the New Testament church did when the Romans were throwing their babies to the wolves. The New Testament church was bringing these children in and calling them their own and making them part of their family. And I think that that... um, narrative is continued through the history of the church and needs to continue today and um but yeah i would i would really encourage you to avoid the political abortion debate and saying anything about that really and i love like that idea of being with someone i think before you tout your opinion let someone tell you their story and why they chose to do what they did. And like you said, Mike, to hug that person, to be with that person in their pain. I think that that's just um, a beautiful way we can be with someone. Lastly, in terms of shaming or triggering someone about their past experience, we would never want to do this purposely, ever. But, he, but here's a thought. I have a, I have a friend who, um, he was in church ministry, and um, he was a son of a pastor, and it looked like he had a, a bright future in front of him just in terms of opportunity, giftedness, what have you. Um, because of circumstance, he ended up um, committing adultery on his wife. And because he was the pastor's son and 
politics in the church. It was covered up. And this is what the church was told. Listen, such and such is stepping down from ministry to focus on his family. And when I heard those words and what had happened with the narrative, the way that it was spun, my heart was just so grieved Because, first of all, this man never had the opportunity to allow his own soul to grieve over the lack of fidelity, um, the failure of love and faithfulness and care for his wife, for his family. He could never do that. I don't even know if he could do it privately. He definitely couldn't do it openly because it was spun, no, this is a good man who is actually sacrificing his opportunities to focus on his family. And because of that, this man has never healed. He has never been able to actually receive the amount of grace that is needed for this healing because his sin, his failure is still private. It's unknown, it's unheard of. And I wonder if the same thing happens with abortion in the church. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about that this is terrible. This is awful that mothers were put in a situation to take the life of their own child because of economic pressures and stuff like that. And we don't talk about that this is a failure of a system, this is a failure of the church community, and this is a failure of the individual. We don't grieve the sin, and so then we don't know how glorious the Savior. We don't know how great his grace. We don't know how powerful the healing blood of Jesus is. Because we say, we don't need it, Jesus, we've got to cover up. We'll do it ourselves. We'll just hide it. And yet this woman, this mother, she carries this grief. She carries this wound with her forever. And I think that what we need to do is we need to do a better job of talking about the seriousness of sin, the way that it brings death, the way that it can bring grief and all these things. And then we need to celebrate even more so the grace and the power, the healing power of our Savior. We need to, you know, what Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much, much more. Church, let's do that together. Let's not hide our sin. Let's confess our sin so that we can see how great the grace of our God is. Let's be public about our sin and mourn our sin publicly so that we can all see the power of restoration because of the work of Jesus. I think when we do that, our hearts will be encouraged to also confess our sins. I think the world will be taken aback. Because, I mean, you think about like what's going on right now, the Me Too movement and all this. There is no opportunity for true repentance, and there is no opportunity for true restoration. We hold up, we tear down, and we forget. And it's done. Weinstein, gone. History. The guy never confessed, and so then there's no, place for, there's no place for repentance, there's no place for restoration. Let's do better than that as the people of God. We have a better antidote with the blood of Jesus. Um, just to... If, if you're having debates with people, and I'd say like maybe pull it down to a discussion... And there are specific things that you'd like to talk about. I mean, we're always available to, to talk about some of those things. I think there's really great questions you can ask to have a really great conversation with people. So that, first off. But um, for, for, for us who, who uphold life 
protecting the unborn. Um, uh, I just wanted to say that it's been the reputation of the followers of Jesus to uphold life in all of its forms. So in the, in the earliest centuries of the church, you had historians that said that this was, a, this was part of the reputation of the church, that they didn't kill their unborn. They were doing abortions all the way back to the ancient Greeks, uh, even further. Um, they, they did not kill their unborn, and they did not leave their children to the elements. So after a baby was born, if they didn't want it, they would just leave it outside someplace, let it die. And it, it was highlighted that this was one of the big reputations of the church, that they protected all life. And so for those of us today, um, if we find ourselves in that camp, we're, we're, in a, we're in a pretty firm, solid, foundational aspect of the church. And you know what? For all these different generations, there's been different reasons why that's been unpopular. So it's not new. It's not new for today. Uh, it feels different because of social media and politics and things like that. But, man, this, is, this has been around for thousands of years. And, uh, yeah, so it's not unique to us. So, anyway, just to kind of encourage you that we're not... The first people have to deal with it, and it's, we won't be the last. So. so, yeah, that brings to the close the questions that were given. I didn't think it was going to go this long. Um, I was like, oh, we're going to need, you know, pass around the mic and all this. So this was great. I enjoyed it. Maybe you guys are like, I'm leaving the church. I'm never doing this again. This was the worst. Um, but, if, but if not, please tell us so we know, like, hey, that was great. That was helpful. That was terrible. That was unhelpful. We'd love feedback. We'd also love ongoing dialogue about these things. We'd love to be able to do another Q&A. Maybe the next one we do would be after service. It wouldn't be take the place for our Sunday morning. But uh, we'd love just to hear from you guys, to, to hear further questions that you ha- might have that we can go uh, along in our journey as we read through the Bible. We keep dialoguing about this stuff. Uh, Mike, would you just uh, say a prayer for us just kind of as we wrap this up? Oh, Father, thank you. Uh, it's good that we can call you Father, that we're always related to you by the creation and then the new birth into your family through your son. And that no matter where we are, whether we feel clear in our minds, whether we feel more confused than ever, uh, you are not ashamed to have us call you our Father. And you're not ashamed to claim us as your children. Uh, And we're so grateful for that. Uh, You've reminded us that when we lack wisdom, we should ask you. And so I ask on my own behalf, on behalf of the leaders of Refuge, on behalf of each and every one of us here, that you will give us wisdom as we listen to your voice responding to us with the questions that we have. Uh, Take us uh, into the presence of Jesus and out into this world uh, as messengers of your good news. For Jesus' sake, with your Holy Spirit's power, amen.